Welcome to Mind Styling, the podcast that explores how we can win at the game inside our heads and make a mark on this world in our own unique style, on our own terms. We interview entrepreneurs and leaders who aren't afraid to push the boundaries and set their own definitions of success. We will share with you the tips and techniques they use to style their mind and give you the tools you need to start mind styling for yourself. Hello, welcome to another episode of Mind Styling. I'm Dr. Becky Sage. And I'm Amy Armstrong. And we are delighted today to be joined by Shustin Pomley and Susie Godson. Shustin is a PhD and Susie, you're soon to be a PhD, I believe. Well, (laughs) I'm writing it up. (laughs) So Shustin and and Susie are co-founders of Me Too, an app that allows people to talk anonymously about difficult things with other people of a similar age or experience. The Me Too mission is to provide mental help to everyone, everywhere, by delivering pre-moderated, anonymous digital peer support, which is effective, accessible, cheap, safe, and scalable. Co-CEO Susie Godson studied graphic design at St. Martin's and the Royal College of Art. She ran a successful design practice for 15 years before retraining as a psychologist. She's now recognized as a leading expert in the field of sex and relationships. She's been the Times Sex and Relationships columnist for 16 years, and her books have been translated into 15 languages. The other co-CEO, Shishin Comley, studied engineering at Bristol University before completing a PhD in bioengineering at Cambridge University. She has 20 years experience in development, product and business management. Before starting Me Too, she founded a successful IT consultancy and co-led a project to open a new free school. Susie and Shoshin, welcome to Mindstyling. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So let's jump straight into the first question. Can you tell us a little bit more about Me Too and the entrepreneurial journey you've been on so far? Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, it, it goes back a long time. But I've been thinking about, about it. I write about sex and relationships for the Times. And I'd always had lots of letters and emails from young people who asked awkward or difficult questions that they didn't feel they could ask anybody face to face and I just thought digital offered a real opportunity to create you know a system where young people could could support each other because what I felt was missing from that conversation was the ability to 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 see what is reality Uh, young people don't have a gauge by which they can measure whether their experience is normal in comparison to anybody else. So I felt that some kind of safe peer support model, which allowed them to do that, would be invaluable. But I can design things, I can write things, I can think about psychology, I have loads of ideas, but I haven't got a clue how to build an app. And so my daughter was doing trampolining, and I knew that this lady at the trampoline class was really really bright and had just done a phd and so i kind of stalked her and then and then asked her to take a look at my idea and and she was she was so positive over to you Shoshan. <laughs> and uh, just to, just to clarify i was also sitting on the sidelines i wasn't actually bouncing up and down <laughs> i was another mum sitting there with my daughter waiting for her to finish um yeah, so so because my background is well, it's originally in, in health, um, so medical device design, um, bioengineering, things like that. Um, but then I had uh, got involved in this project to open a free school, and by the time I met Susie, the school was up and running. Uh, I was from from being a kind of the project lead into actually just being a governor. But it had made me very very much aware of. Um, you know, the needs of young people and the lack of things like adequate sex education in schools and uh, all the safeguarding concerns and issues that that young people face. Um, And I was very interested in sort of moving into more of an ed tech arena. And I'd already started doing some projects in that area. So when, when Susie sort of shared the idea with me, I mean, I think I went back the next day with about two pages of questions and scribblings and (laughs) 
<laughs> and all the rest of it because it just it just made sense you know it just it it, it was it's a very clear problem and here he had this you know this sort of start of an absolutely phenomenal idea and, and it just made just made huge sense so we started we started working together we spent um quite a long time nearly a year as much getting to know each other as getting to know uh, know the problem um, I was very interested in lean development and um, Susie used to tease me that we were literally following the textbook <laughs> as to how to do it, you know. So we, we did all that stuff of like excessive user research. Um, I hacked together a pilot that we tested in three schools and the findings from that were absolutely fantastic. Um, and I think really like five years on, we're only just coming to the end of all the knowledge that we we acquired during that t- sort of two two and a half year phase of of all that user research. And I mean, so that that's one of the real learnings for me is that it may feel like it's it's slowing the process down. Actually, not at all. It's the absolute opposite. If you can do that bit right, you can then accelerate very fast afterwards because you know exactly what the solution should be as opposed to trying to guess. Um, so we did. We did feel that we um, we were very slow because, you know, according to the Lean Startup, you should build your MVP and get it out there and start testing it in, you know, in the field. Whereas we did a pilot with three secondary schools <clears throat> and worked with the, because, we're, you know, our model is a bit different. It's a service in that every post and reply has to be moderated by a human in order to, keep, you know, keep it safe. But in working with the young people, what we realized was that the product, which had originally been built around the idea that, you know, issues around sexuality or gender or sex or sexual health might be the primary issues, we realized, of course, immediately that you can't separate out those issues. And so the kid who was worried about coming out was being bullied at school and had parents who were very dysfunctional. And so we had to expand the umbrella and it, and it comes under a mental health umbrella, but is actually really about life support because so many of the issues that come up are, well, they're dynamic and they're changing because kids are growing and changing and things don't stay the same all the time. And so it's, it's really about creating a space where you can normalize that process and give them the support while they need it so that they could just grow up and get a handle on it by themselves. And that all became clear in the research process. And we changed our model based on what we learned so that when we actually did build a proper MVP, we were really, really clear about what we were doing. I love what you said there. As somebody who's a director of acceleration for an edtech accelerator, this is exactly what we talk about. And uh, you know, you say it took kind of time to get to the MVP, but you sort of you had an MVP that was even pre-MVP, right? Which was just about what are the questions I'm asking and and what are the areas we focus on? How do we how do we segregate them? Or and and so I think we've jumped straight into the meat already. That that those what you've already said about lean methodology and getting out there and and talking to that user base really early on and doing that research alongside your users allowed you to to not invest heavily in things before you or you had the information that you needed to to build what they would actually want or at least kind of to to start to narrow the the areas in which you were working or, or what that MVP was going to look like so I, that, that was a reflection rather than a question but I think it, it's really useful for other people to hear that because it's uh, it's difficult to slow yourselves down sometimes I think especially when you've got loads of ideas uh, I guess my question would be how, how did you slow yourself down is that just experience that you've had in terms of product development and understanding just the value of the research I think I think I think the fact that we didn't know each other beforehand in a, in a way was its own, own natural break because we, we were getting to know us, each other as much as the, the process. But I think Susie and I both very much grounded in research. We're, you know, um, Susie, Susie doing her PhD now, you know, I've done one in the past. We're, we're both people who come from a background of, of wanting evidence and wanting to feel really confident and secure in what we're doing. Um, I think this, you know, just just very briefly, this concept of MVP is often misused. As you said, actually, every stage, everything you do has its own little MVP. 
and um, the term MVP has come to replace the term beta, which is completely wrong. You know, the beta, beta version is its distinct thing. Actually, at all times, we are creating new MVPs of our new ideas and, and developing them and expanding them further. But um, yeah, so so I think in terms of in terms of slowing down, I think recently we're falling more into the trap of kind of, of, of rushing a little bit because there's so much pressure on us now that the app has been so successful. Um, you know, we've got a big set of um, investors um, and we're, we're sort of keen to, to bring in all these new ideas. And I think that's going to be the bigger challenge for us as we scale. Actually, it wasn't the challenge so much in the early days because we, it was just Susie and I and we could spend as much time as we wanted doing whatever we wanted. <laughs> and now we have to find ways to really make sure that those, those core values of authenticity and evidence really, really remain within all the work that we do. So I, I, for me, I can see it more of a challenge in the future than it was in the past. I'm really curious about those early MVPs. <laughs> How did you, um, because that transition from face-to-face, if it was face-to-face, to uh, an app interface. How did you navigate that? I'm, I'm really curious to understand that. Oh, the, the, first, the first MVP was a little app. It wasn't a face-to-face interaction. It wouldn't have worked if we'd been testing face-to-face versus. We, we did a lot of face-to-face research with parents, with teachers, and with young people where we spoke to them because there was obviously no point in building something if there wasn't an appetite there for it. Um, but when we actually tested it in the schools, it was a, a very rudimentary web app. And the first thing they, they said was, we'd hate web apps. We want an app. Yeah. When's it good? When can I get it from the Play Store? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was an interesting experience, though, because the other thing it taught us really quickly was um, Originally, our model, you know, we'd always had this concept that we wanted to be self-sufficient. It's a highly altruistic project. Everything that we do would meet the um, Charities Commission Commission's definition of a charitable endeavour. But we, you know, we, we, we were really interested in being sustainable. Um, and so our original plan was that we would actually have this service, web or app-based, you know, native app-based, which the schools would pay for and the students would log into with their school email address. And super easy, you know, you've got that subscription model, job done. The, the very first thing, because because what I built was not very robust, it was you know, with a bit of a flaky flaky um, website, um, the first thing they all figured out how to do was to have to change their email address. So although their school had said you need to log up with your, your, your school, they all switched it over. And for that, that was a really invaluable piece of learning because it showed us that they did want to engage, they did want to have a place to talk about things uh, privately and anonymously, but they didn't want it to be a school-based thing. And there was a, there still is a huge uh, challenge to be overcome around trust and around helping the people who use the app feel, really believe that, that we're not going to pass that information on to somebody else who will then know all their secrets. You know, that, that, that trusting is really important. Mm. And I, I think that that's, that's another message just mm. in terms of this uh, product development and getting feedback from users. It's what they do um, more than what they say. It tells, tells you more, right? The, the, it's that those actions that are going to give really give you the information that you want. Um, so, so I wanted to just wind back a little bit to when you first met met each other, because co-founders and and relationships within the founding team are something that I know all our listeners are interested in. And how did you? I mean, how did this happen? Where where you came together and and it was like I've got this idea, and I think that you <laughs> might have the relevant expertise to do it. And it, how did that happen? And how did you? I mean, you said already that it, it took a little bit of time in terms of getting to know each other, and that was happening through the process. But how did you know that together you would be able to work well? Uh, we were definitely checking each other out initially. I mean, you know, I, I, I saw short, I was on a mission and I saw short somebody who had basically had the keys to the car and was going to get me there. And, and so we were, we, were, we were definitely, we were seeing, could we work together? How did we work together? Were we compatible? And actually, we are absolutely chalk and cheese. I mean, they're really, we really are yin and yang. 
And yet we have some fundamentally similar core values. And they are, as Shoshan said, you know, evidence-based, research-based, authentic. We needed to be able to absolutely believe in what we were doing and that what we were doing was working and was doing good. We didn't want to make some rubbish chat app where kids would just, you know, chat with each other. We wanted to make something that would really help them. And I think that sort of shared mission, we both have, I would say, a phenomenal attention to detail. We're both workaholics. I think both our husbands would would endorse that. (laughs) Um, And those things only emerged over time. You know, we didn't know those things about each other initially. Um, And I do think the fact that we weren't friends made it a lot easier because it was a professional relationship first and foremost. And I think um, a lot of people who, who go into partnerships do so because they're afraid of doing something on their own. So they take someone along for the ride, but they don't generally have um, a complementary skill set. Our, our skill set goes across the board. We have ed tech, we have engineering, we have design, we have psychology, we, we can write stuff. We could, we could fake it until we made it. We could literally put stuff out there that made us look like we were a massive company, not two women in the living room. As a desk, and and that that helped us a lot. We have we have we have a really extensive and complementary skill set between us. And I think in a partnership, don't go into partnership with somebody who does the same thing as you. Definitely pick somebody who does all the stuff that you can't do. And I think that that's why we've we've worked out. Even in your bios, I think even just reading them, you can kind of see that it's so complementary between the two. And I know a bio doesn't say everything, but you, it's certainly in terms of that broad range of skills and experience. It, it looks like you you fill in many of the pieces of that puzzle that are required. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the one of the things we struggled with at the beginning was everybody was saying to us, "Oh, you need a tech, you need a tech co-founder," you know, because although I do have backgrounds in to, to a certain extent in, in some of the tech side of it. I'm not a software developer. I couldn't, you know, I can I can cobble something together, you know, in a sort of very amateurish way, but I couldn't possibly, you know, actually go out and write write all the code. And and obviously for, as for startups, that is usually the biggest outlay. So unless you've got money, you, you need that person who's going to be able to do it with, you know, with just with their sweat rather than rather than any other, you know, uh, resources and so, so we spent quite a while trying to trying to find this mythical tech co-founder and we trialed a few different people and for various reasons each each individual or each group just really wasn't the right fit for us and then finally a, a friend of mine a CTO said I don't I really don't know what you're doing you're just going to have to pay for this and and it was really good advice actually because you know Susie and I are such a good fit we, you know we do work incredibly well together and even just having that third person in probably would have distorted that dynamic anyway. Um, and so instead, we were very fortunate to have somebody who was willing to put up some um, some funding for us. Um, and we found a brilliant software development team in Lithuania uh, to, to solve that. But I think it, t- it took about nine months for us to get that to that stage. That was that was really quite challenging. And it was very interesting when we did meet the developer. We knew immediately that they were right. I mean, they would. They were, we, well, first of all, they were taking us on as a sort of pet project because they do these massive, massive projects and they take on some uh, altruistic projects, to, you know, that are for good to sort of keep their coders entertained. So we were definitely one of them, which was great for us. But they, you know, they, the, the, the guy that we met was just so straightforward and you could tell that he was going to, he got what we were trying to do and it and it and it worked. And I would say that's the other thing is trust your instinct on people because it's so easy to get sort of hoodwinked into believing people are going to deliver you the world that you have, you know, there is something you know when the fit is right. So just wait, even if you're desperate, just wait for that right person. It's interesting how often you've talked about trust in this conversation. And we haven't had many minutes yet, but trust has come up. The importance of the young people using your app, that they trust you to look after them and support them and not share their 
deepest secrets. Um, and then the trust that you needed to build between the two of you and then trusting your instincts that you got the right fit when you went for the uh, software developers rather than actually finding your mythical third party. <laughs> uh, what do you think it is about trust? How does trust work for you two? Is there a formula or is this something that you've just, it's that, as Susie was saying, it's the instinct. It's just how it feels. Well, I think, I think in terms of um, engagement with our users and, and our customers, you know, the space we've chosen to work in is a high-risk space. Um, although, although we're predominantly early intervention, um, it, it never, nevertheless, we are talking to very vulnerable people, whatever their age they might be, um, and we are seeing an increasing number of quite high-risk users, people who are, you know, even attempting suicide, things like that. And it, so, and it comes again back to it's that link between trust and evidence Rather than just being an app, Susie said, that's just a kind of nice place to have a chat. We want to be a place where, where we actually make a difference. And um, we've just completed a study with the Anna Freud Centre, who has found statistically significant um, evidence that Meta improves well-being uh, for its users. So that's, so that's brilliant. But of course, the trust element for our users extends more than just to more than just that. You know, we've got their data. How are we managing their data? We're making these promises about anonymity and confidentiality. And so I think it's just from that perspective, it's just fundamental to the service that we're delivering. And if we if we didn't put trust front and center, the service would fail. And as Susie said, what we what we share is an absolute drive to deliver on our mission. Um, so that that's the that's the perspective for me around trust around the app. Susie, I'll, I'll leave you to answer the bit about trust internally between the individuals, but I'm sure it, I'm sure it's all interconnected, isn't it? It's all about the culture. Of who you yeah, I, I think you know. I think I think we have similar values. And look, every day is another opportunity for me to let Shoshan down, or for Shoshan to let me down. And we don't do it. We don't let each other down. You know, if we have to work till midnight to get a bid in, we'll work till midnight. We know that. We've got each other's backs and that's massively important because we're, we're on this journey together. And I, I know that we both feel really lucky that we are two co-founders because although it's unusual, it means we've constantly got somebody to, to talk to, to check things out, to bounce an idea off. You know, we are, are, we are each other's backup. So, you know, we're phenomenally important to each other. And the idea of one of us getting ill or going under a bus is unthinkable. I mean, that, that's probably the only downside is that we are, we are quite codependent in that respect because we, we value each other hugely. Mm. Related to that, I'm quite interested in exploring this idea that with you both being workaholics, as, as you said, and uh, happy, you know, you will put the work in and and push through work till midnight, not, not let each other down in terms of the workload. How how do you also make sure that you are looking after each other and that you are you have got the kind of time and space to recuperate when necessary or or slow down if necessary I don't think we ever slow down that's, <laughs> that's a definite problem <laughs> we started we started doing partly because of lockdown and I, I can't remember exactly what triggered it but we've started doing a Monday morning walk and then although in the last three weeks which have been completely frantic it's gone a bit by the wayside um, we've, we've pretty much stuck with this for, I don't know, about six months now. And so we meet on a Monday morning and in, and instead of having, that's our kind of, you know, catch up, our sort of manage, management review, if you like. Um, and that's really great because that means we can check in with each other. We can, we obviously we go, I, have, I bring a little, huge list usually of all the things we have to talk about. But that, that I think has become really valuable for the both of us. Mm -hmm. um, I think we are, we're probably not good enough at telling each other to slow down and stop, although we do quite frequently just send each other emails in all capitals that just say, stop working. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think the walk is a nice thing as well, isn't it? So, and, and what you're making me think of there is there's ways to slow down even as we do some of the things that are valuable 
for our working you know you can slow down even though you're, you're checking in with each other well you're not on a screen all the time and you are getting to move around and so you're kind of adapting the way you do things just so that and that in itself is probably helping you to help each other to you know stay healthy as you go on this this journey which is doesn't seem to be slowing down by the sounds of it <laughs> it's also I think the walk is really important so we I don't know we do about eight kilometers and I have three dogs so we take the three dogs as well and it's in those moments that you get a kind of a clarity around ideas because you're away from the screen you're able to think broadly you're able to back and forth and it's actually a much more creative process. It's a very interactive process. So we, we will actually often go with this huge list and end up having an idea and chatting about that and ignoring the list and having to do that on, on Zoom later on. But yeah, it's just creating that, that space where you can think in a fresh way about what you're doing and evaluate what you're doing. And I, I think we've had some of our best ideas on those walks, to be honest. The, the well, other, oh, sorry. Go for it, Justin. Well, I was just going to say the other thing that I think we've been, we never feel we're quite good enough at, but I think probably we are very good at it, is, is actually bringing in other people, other advisors. And, and we've done that right from the outset. You know, we're, we're high, highly collaborative in the way we work and uh, really keen to learn from others and, and, you know, listen and learn. And so, you know, at various times, you know, we've had different people come along and we've now got a, a brilliant, very engaged board um, and, and they help and they, you know, they do say to us, how after yourselves, how you, you know, how are you managing things? Or they show us new techniques and ways of, of working and things. So we've, we've built this kind of support system around us as well uh, over, the, over the last few years, which is really valuable to us. Did you start out working part time on this? It sounds like it was an evolution and it's got more and more intense. And at what point did you feel, if you did, if you did, um, that it was time to go full time, full focus? <laughs> I would say we've always been full time on it. We've just been pretending we were part time. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. I think, yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? I mean, that those were probably before we. So I think we, I think we met in about twenty. Oh gosh, I can't remember. Twenty fourteen. We met in twenty fourteen, and then it wasn't until Susie won an award with the School of Social Entrepreneurs, the September twenty fifteen, that we actually set up a company. Um, and so probably in that period, I was still working on another project. Obviously, Susie's doing her PhD. She also writes for the Times. I've got this other company that I sort of. Um, with my husband I ran with him so there was there was quite a lot going on and then you know gradually after the company was actually formed um then then we started putting more and more time on it I mean it's only been in about the last two years that we've actually been paid a salary so we have had to do other work all the way along in order to, to you know to either give us any money at all or, or still sort of top up the income um the other sort of you know, the, the other recommendation that I might make, you know, what would I do, what would we do differently, is I think actually I would, I would, if knowing what I know now, I would have delayed forming the company because we were still so much in the research phase, probably for a whole other year. And there's loads and loads of um, support out there for startups, but they tend to be related to two years. And, and actually, that's a bit daft because the startup phase can last, and especially for a social enterprise, can last a lot longer than two years. Um, and so if we delayed founding the company for another year, we would have had more access for longer to some of that support that we needed. But mm. obviously, that's all with hindsight. We can say that. Yeah, I I had that experience as well. We ended up doing a lot of project work early on. And, and so there were a couple of years that were more kind of project-based work, and then it, it turned into it. So we were older as a company but not as mature in terms of some of that support that we might want to be getting um so something so you said it was two years ago that you started to be able to draw a salary what was the step change that enabled you to do that um so we won an award actually back in 2018 i think with teach first teach first innovation award and that came with some salary so that was our first dip into having money come our way 
Um, and then it just, you know, it reached the point where we were actually, well, we got some Innovate UK awards and, you know, we were just seeing enough income one way or another to be able to, to justify some. But, you know, we, we've, we've been loaning back a huge proportion of the salary even during that mm -hmm. period. Um, so, and then, you know, finally got to the point with the board where we said, look, actually, I think, you know, we're, we're this far into this, into this, our family has been tolerant long enough. <laughs> We we have to we have to now be treating as much as employees as, as anything yeah. else because emotionally there's about the, the emotion of it as well. Mm. I think I think it's really important to flag that because I think it's very common for e even when founders are drawing a salary to then be like you said loaning it back. There's plenty of directors' loans that that go back into startups. That's for sure. And um and I think that sometimes it it looks on the outside like things are one way or maybe people are looking in and going how how does that work? How are they do doing that when that's the reality? Um, it's not like everyone's getting rich in <laughs> off the back of being in a startup in those early days it's yeah you've got you've got to kind of keep uh, financially anyway it's it needs feeding doesn't it um so uh, you mentioned that you went down that you've gone down the investment route so how has that been for you um time consuming <laughs> <laughs> frustrating so we've done um well, so Susie and I put money in the beginning and then we did what we ended up calling a founder's round uh, two years ago, um, which we sort of friends and family round, I guess, um, you know, with sort of people that we very closely connected to, of whom then became, in fact, they already were our board members and, and you know, persuaded <laughs> <laughs> them to put their money in, which they both joked about, you know, they were already giving up their time for free and <laughs> they were giving money to us. <laughs> So, so we did that and that kind of, that was great because that's obviously a great sort of marker for other people to say, okay, people, you know, there's a group of people who have actually invested in this. So that was great. And then last September, we did what you might call a seed A round. So we raised 310,000. Um, that, so that was a, you know, that, that was a really interesting experience because obviously it was during COVID and lockdown and all that uncertainty that was going on there. Um, but we managed to find a really great group of people who believe in what we're doing because we are a social enterprise. So this is social impact investing, which is quite different um, and, and less well understood than regular investing. Um, but we found this group of people who, who fundamentally believe in what we're doing and therefore all of them get involved in helping, helping the business succeed. Um, and then we're just about to, to go and do the next, what might be the, you know, the CPE round. So we'll be looking to raise about one and a half million, I think, before the end of the year. Um, so, that, so that's going to be interesting, you know, and I think what we learned from the last round is that for the most part, VCs are not a good fit for us, venture capitalists. You know, that, that no matter, I've yet to find a, a, a VC who says they're interested in, 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 in impact, who genuinely understands impact. You know, it is all about the profit for them. And of course, we make a profit. Of course, we want our investors to, to see a return, um, but we have to put impact first. Otherwise, the whole thing, whole thing fails anyway. So, Shostin, I was just really interested in that distinction between social impact investment and VCs. And you mentioned right at the start, you were talking about everything being aligned to um, charitable commission requirements. Was that from the outset, did both of you just think this is just purely social impact? This isn't uh, one of those companies where we're going to exit selling it for millions? Well, I think initially, initially we didn't know, initially we didn't know but we did know it was highly altruistic. We didn't, we didn't have a defined, you know, view on what what form the, the venture would take it was it was very much about how do we solve this we've identified a problem how do we solve it and for you know that's that's really our entire focus and we, we did spend quite a bit of time looking at whether we should become a charity um and we spent i think we, we spent about three months really digging into it we even got as far as having our first meeting with uh you know sort of like pseudo board meeting with three people who could have become our trustees and when they went through it all with us they said you mustn't become a charity <laughs> um, and you know lots of problems tech it's better than it was five years ago but 
but tech is still a challenge in the charity world. Tech needs to be agile, quick decision making, uh, you know, really fast moving. The charity world is still still stuck, uh, not moving that quickly. There's a real lack of trustees who have good knowledge of both of both sides, so that would have been difficult. Um, a lot of the people we wanted to work with are charities, and we found that in the mental health space, there's a huge amount of competition, which which unfortunately. Um, inhibits collaboration because all the charities are vying for the same pot of funding. Um, and I guess that the, the final thing is that we felt that there was the potential to bring in revenue. And since there is, why would you be a charity? Because if we can be self-sufficient and it's it's much better for us to, to have that drive to be self-sufficient and not have to go out, not have to, you know, in the mental health space, often you'll see that the messaging that the charities have to put out is the message of doom and gloom and negativity in order to touch our hearts and, and get us to, to part with our money. And we want it to be the exact opposite. We want to be about, about positive solutions. Um, we want it to, you know, to be much more sort of vibrant and, and dynamic than we would be able to be if we, we were in the sort of charity world. And the other um, issue is that young people are incredibly sophisticated consumers and if you're going to give them a tech product, it has to work really well. It has to be state of the art. It has to be tiny so it fits on their phone. It can't collapse or break. It has to have brilliant security. It has to have, you know, every bell and whistle because, you know, we're, we're competing with social media. You know, we're, a, we're an app that does, does good, that improves well-being, but we are still competing for their time with social media. So to create that, level of sophistication required a huge investment and we were never going to get that as a small startup charity so at, at, although we did explore that very carefully the decision sort of made itself you know we wanted to create a really brilliant app that worked amazingly well we were never going to be able to do it as a charity but, but Amy your question of um you know what what about just becoming a company that makes loads of money and has a big exit and all the rest of it and I probably have to tell my investors to close their ears now but, <laughs> but you know, do, do we really want to be making billions out of other people's misery I wouldn't feel comfortable with that you know the space that we're in um it, it's one it's one that you know we need to we need to be compassionate and think about the people that we're dealing with and so the social enterprise model is an absolutely perfect fit because yes we we can and, and will make a profit we will give our investors a return but impact and it's written into our articles of association decisions about impact come from profit um, and if we get that right we'll get the business right anyway so there's yeah. no conflict. Mm. however i would say that at, at a certain point if if a, if somebody came along who was able to give us access to you know international growth so that we could be helping more kids all over the world so that we could really up our game so we had access to you know a, a great sort of amazingly huge tech team so we could do all the things and scale up massively then that might be an exit for investors a neat exit for investors but it would also really further our mission and sit with our purpose so we think that there's lots of ways that you know our our our, we, our aim is true our aim is you know very very targeted but that doesn't mean that we can't grow massively mm -hmm. and and what is the business model that you're exploring at the moment our our we are working with schools and universities but because our because every post and reply is pre-moderated, it is categorized and it's tagged and it creates the most incredible data set. And so what we're doing is we're giving schools and universities their data mm, okay. from their students. And that is a package of support with app for teachers, app for kids and data. And, and that's our, our first revenue model and it's working really well, but we have massive plans for lots and lots of other things that we can do um, in the pipeline uh, but you know for us that we only started selling in September so mm. the, the traction has been unbelievable in the space of a year mm. um, so it's it's onwards and upwards. 
you might be asking the same question as me. I was just wondering about uh, the the interplay between lockdown and COVID. And of course, we know that mental health of teenagers was something that was very prominent, uh, especially in terms of uh, like you, Justin, I am, um, I'm a governor at a school and, and it was certainly kind of this massive spike and lots and lots of challenges with mental health in school. Do you think that that has, I don't want to say helped you um, alongside this, but, it, but, you know, yeah, do you think that that has been something that has enabled you to kind of spread your message and make it easier for those customers to understand? We, we were definitely the right product in the right place at the right time. All our moderators work remotely. We were completely geared up. And so we doubled in size, more than doubled in size in the last 18 months. Um, a lot of other support services like Childline, for example, people go into a call center and answer the phone. Obviously, none of that could happen. So, you, you know, we, we looked incredibly clever at the beginning of COVID. And we then, we then, we had done a book called them. Um, me Too Mental Health Handbook, which had won the British Medical Association Health and Social Care Book of the Year Award in 2019. And that had, we had put this amazing directory into that. And we then, well, that was definitely something that we, we rushed through, built that into the app so that the kids had access to all these phenomenal resources. Um, and that's been hugely successful for us. But, you know, we, we were we were ba we basically had put a structure in place that was designed for COVID without really realising it. And and the other thing that's changed, of course, is that both schools and the NHS have it's forced it's forced a lot of people to embrace digital. You know, and so lots of the conversations that we were having pre-COVID, uh, we just don't have to have anymore because you know people get it, they understand, they feel much more confident about using digital. Uh, the NHS, who will be, we hope, another another big customer, uh, is recognising the value of, of you know services like like ours. You know, there's there's more conversations now about how would that be funded from the NHS. So, you know, there's been a whole lot of sort of more general structural changes going on around us that we just that will enable our, our growth and, and expansion. Curious. Um around the, the intervention the speed of the intervention because you've obviously got this wonderful moderated response uh, mechanism which is inbuilt safeguarding basically and quality assurance what happens when um a young person expresses a, a real time in the moment need for support perhaps because of suicidal thoughts that they feel anxious there we don't, we don't currently put suicidal posts into the feed because we don't feel that in a peer support app it's appropriate. You know, even though the app is age banded, it's that you know we're an early intervention service, so those posts immediately get put into quarantine and a counsellor is alerted, and the counsellor goes in and deals with that young person behind the scenes. Brilliant. One of the problems is that our moderators work from seven. 30 in the morning till 11 at night and most suicides occur between midnight and four in the morning so one of our next steps is to build 24-hour cover um, we think that that's you know that's really important and we do you know within the app young people in crisis can contact the shout text line or they can contact child line or they can contact they can contact a, a, a huge range of other services. But in COVID, we've supported, I think, 754 young people who were suicidal and 91 of them had taken an overdose. And with those numbers, we can no longer justifiably say we're not supporting suicidal young people. We have to now change our app and build a better service so that we can support them in the way that they deserve. It must feel like quite a responsibility on your shoulders. I, I, I see it as, a, as an amazing opportunity rather than, I mean, from, a, you know, to, to what, what we've seen is that the, you know, these other services like, like Shout are, are absolutely brilliant. You know, they, 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 they're, they're, they're incredibly well run. They're very well received but none of them provide ongoing support. 
Um, it's in the moment interactions, whether, you know, Ch Childline is trying to move to, towards providing a little bit more ongoing, but shout, it's, you know, you call up in that moment and they, they talk, they get, they calm you down, you know, they get you from a hot moment to a cool moment, which is, which is absolutely needed. But I think what we've seen, and, you know, it's, it goes right back to the conversation we're having at the beginning about looking at what your users do. We've seen that young people really value Me Too, even in those moments of desperation and crisis. And we can provide that support to, to, to you know, in those really difficult moments, but also the next day and the day after. You know, it can be an ongoing service, completely scalable and at a cost that's an absolute fraction of what it would cost the NHS or, or other, you know, service providers to deliver. So that that's for me anyway feels incredibly exciting mm -hmm. that's the next this is the next step for me too you know <laughs> we've sort of done the first bit and then this is what will drive certainly Susan's and my creativity for the next mm. year and I, and I would say that so the entire project has been like that it's been like it's driven us forward we you know the, these decisions as I said are made for us we can't ignore that need it's 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 there in front of us our job is is to is to build a structure that supports that need that state of the art that's better than anything else around and so and so we that's you know that's not us making a decision it's a decision being made for us we just rising to the occasion mm. something i've been really interested the whole time as we've been talking is um so you, there's obviously a very human need a human driver behind what you're doing um very individual actually you know as you talk about this it, you can almost picture the individuals interacting with the app but of course you've already grown quite big you you know you've got more users than you can probably picture um each, each one of them and i know you've done you've done a lot of efficacy efficacy studies and and you're you know collaborating around getting the evidence behind the impact of what you do do you still get a chance to interact with your users on a bit more of an individual basis do you still get to see the you know their their eyes lighting up because they've had a positive experience with me too uh, you certainly see that from the app. I, I do the first moderation at weekdays, not weekends, I'm alive, but <laughs> weekdays I do the first moderation shift at 7.30 and I, I like to do that. You know, it's it gets me a chance to see what's going on and um, what's going on in the app. Um, we get so many posts and replies on the app thanking us, thanking the community, you know, and they get shared around either, you know, somebody, one of the moderators, one of the counsellors, somebody will pick it up and, and share it with the whole team. So we sort of get to see that. Uh, we do a lot of engagement work with schools. So we have work experience programmes and ambassador programmes. So we try very hard to stay connected with the audience that you know our audience and we're expanding we've got a new app called me to connect for people working in the education sector and we're just figuring out how do we how do we you know make sure we have better contact with with that audience so i think that's i think that's sort of fundamental if we ever get from it if we, you know we don't have those i mean susie this morning has been up to epsom school to me <laughs> Excellent. It's one of our kind of early adopters. So it was amazing. You know, I met three boys, uh, six formers, absolute, you know, advocates for, for peer support and for Me Too and working with, with younger students in the school and their approach to um, being open about emotional issues and about peer support as a model was, was just, I was so blown away. And I do, I do find that having that opportunity to talk to young people directly, they, they give you ideas all the time. It's a constantly iterative process of listening and learning and changing and developing. And it's just, the same is true talking to head teachers. You know, when, when we give back their data as a termly report, and it's become apparent now that the, the, the head teachers show that data to the young people. So they take the data and they make PowerPoints out of it. So, of course, our next step is, well, we'll give you the PowerPoint. We will make it so that it's front facing so the students can actually see what we're learning. So it's, it is completely iterative like that. And it's, a, it's phenomenal. I never, ever get bored by it because every day you learn something new. It's amazing. Susie, are you therefore, um, when you're seeing these different 
trends in data and needs and conversation topics that are happening, are you then uh, facilitating the school's capacity to respond to that or directing them in? Yeah. Absolutely. So when we when we pull out what's happening in their data, we then we either have the research or we do the research to show them what's the latest thinking around this. What is the best thing for you to do? How should you respond? What kind of targeted interventions could we could you do? And so and so we can we can explain it to them in a way that makes it less intimidating, less scary and gives them steps forward in terms of and it's and it's massively important because so much energy is wasted dealing with issues that are not the real issues. So, for example, schools where there's a suicide, you know, there's a kind of a knee-jerk response and everything is geared around suicide prevention. And then our data reveals that the real issues are completely different. The real issues are about problems with coming out or eating disorders or anxiety or parents. And so it allows the schools to pivot and focus their energies on on prevention and education in the areas that then they're not focusing on because they've been so kind of wound up by what's happened and that's really important in terms of getting getting support to the whole school and also managing resources because all schools have limited resources and so it helps them to target those resources more effectively and it gives them the confidence that they're doing the right thing because they're all working so hard and obviously coming at it from a place of real care for their young people but actually and it's scary it is scary for a teacher it's scary to know that in a class of 30 possibly seven kids are self-harming based on the the existing data teachers can't even can't even manage that thought let alone know what to do about it so having a resource like me too where they know the kids are supported where they can get support themselves and they can get the information and guidance that they need in a very real way. It's different being told this is what you need to do to being shown the the qualitative data that explains from the young person's perspective how it feels, what's going on, how complex it is, because these things never happen in isolation. It's never I'm self-harming, it's I'm self-harming because I'm a young carer and my mother's on drugs, or I'm self-harming because I think I'm going to fail my A-levels and my parents are paying for a private school and I've got no idea how to tell them. It's it's complex and it's multi-layered and that's what we can unpack for schools we can help them to unpack all of that stuff and we can also show them what's really going on mm. that's what I was just thinking as you were talking there and and I know you've spoken about it uh, about it being preventative uh, as much as anything else and uh, there must be you know whenever there's mental health stats data we all know that there's so much bubbling away underneath that is hidden that is is not data that's coming out are, are you finding that that this is going deeper this is revealing a lot more than would normally be, re- be revealed in terms of data on mental health so it certainly appears so um we did we were looking at some of our data last year looking over a sort of two two and a half year period and they saw that for Young people in secondary school, basically across the board, uh, there are these significant peaks in anxiety shortly before the start of the term. So, so that's like August, September, January, and to a certain extent also in um, in March. And my first thought, being some you know school governor and very involved with schools, oh well, that will be all about the pressure of pressure of education. You know, the need to perform for exams or whatever. Actually, when we dug into it, we found that, that there were two two issues that were really coming through. First was the changing dynamics of friendships over the holiday period, and the the anxiety of going back into the school environment, and you know there's that social anxiety of uh, um, following on from that change in, in friendship dynamic. And the other one was was which really surprised me was a real worry and fear that lots of young people had about going back into an environment that they really didn't feel comfortable in because of noise, because of number of people, because they were going to have to be with people that they didn't really want to be with. And and it just made me think, yeah, you know, as an adult, we choose where we work, we choose where we live. 
kids don't have it. We never, I've never even thought about that. Yeah, a kid is made to go to school and that's, that's almost the end of the matter. But for, for young people who, who just like adults don't like a very noisy environment or a chaotic or whatever it is, that, that can create a huge amount of anxiety. So we were able to take all that, package it up and do a webinar very well received for teachers in that just in the, the August period so that they could have a better sense of what they might do to support their students maybe even the week before they came back to school you know because then they would start in a better place save a lot of aggro <laughs> in those first few weeks of term if, if their kids were you know better prepared and, and less anxious. Mm. Great so we're going to have to wrap up in a minute Amy have you got any other final questions? I suppose it was just one. Is you you just one? You both talked about well, you met at trampoline lessons for your daughters. I think it was. <laughs> um, Susie, you mentioned your three dogs. Uh, uh, is it your uh, family life and your children and your deep involvement in schools generally, as well? Obviously, Susie, this is part of your career. Um, is that how has that contributed to your focus and passion for me too? Uh, it's a good question, and I don't really know what the answer is. To be honest, I have four daughters ranging in age from thirty to fifteen, so I've been around a lot of young people for a very long time, um, and and so I've. I've seen the, the sort of roller coaster ride of adolescence on four different occasions now. Um, and I just, you know, I, I guess, and I guess I think back to my own adolescence and how appalling it was being locked in a convent boarding school with no advice or information or anyone to talk to. And it doesn't really take long to tap into that place of vulnerability which I think is where all of this comes from. I, I think I identify quite a lot with a lot of the kids on the app. I, I get why they feel the way they do. I don't question it. I understand it. And, and that, that's my kind of, that's where I start from. Um, but I'm an adult and I can come up with solutions. So, you know, that's my job. <laughs> Lovely. Okay, so it is time to wrap up and we should have one final question, which is your top tips for our listeners. So what would you say to aspiring entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs and, and leaders out there who, you know, want to make an impact and at the same time are thinking about building a business and, and kind of needing to put those two things hand in hand? Um, for me, I think the top tip is that it, that it has to be all about the problem. I see a lot of people in the startup space who seem to be doing startup for the sake of doing startup, and and actually, actually, if you if you can find and there are so many problems out there, if you can find a really meaty problem that you can you can believe in and you can really want to to fix then, you know, that's your motivation. You're never, you're never going to tire of, of wanting to find ideas and looking for solutions, but it, it, you, ha you have to start with that problem, I think. Mm. Susie, do you have a tip? Um, yeah, my tip would be to, um, I'm always saying this is shot and don't kitchen sink it. You know, people have this tendency, they get overexcited and, and so they come up with one idea and then they fire 50 different ideas on top of it and it becomes incredibly complicated and they don't end up doing anything well. So it's really important to keep it simple, be clear about your mission and just keep going down that track and, and staying very true to that. If you do that, you won't go wrong. But if you try and do be all things to all men, you'll fail for everyone. Mm, great tips. We kind of got two for the price of one there, which is awesome. Um, so where can our listeners find you? Uh, so they can download the app. Um, and so it's for anybody over the age of 11. Our focus tends to be younger people, but we are seeing an increasing number of older people use it as well. Um, they can go to the website, metoo.help. So mm -hmm. metoo is spelled M-E-T-O-O dot help. 
uh, and then yeah contact forms or whatever and we'd love to hear from people mm, brilliant thank you and we would love to hear from you too um if you've got any feedback on this interview then please get in touch with us we're at mind styling podcast on facebook and instagram and at mind styling pod on twitter thank you so much uh what an incredible deep um yeah we jumped straight in in depth into that interview um but it's incredible work that you're doing and I think that our listeners are just going to learn uh, so much by listening to this interview so thank you so much for your thank time thank you it's been wonderful meeting you both and congratulations what an amazing product you've brought to us all thank you it was really enjoyable I thought did you Shosha? I did yeah <laughs> So we can't always control the situations that are going on outside of us, but we can be in control of how we react to those situations. And that is what mind styling is all about.